you be seated at this time. It's called Emmanuel. God with us. the stage music. I've been called goofy. In fact, Ariana called me silly smarty daddy the other day. <clears throat> okay. So this, um, this sermon is entitled Christmas Shopping. 
And it doesn't have anything to do with Christmas shopping, so don't let the sermon fool you. Um, but there is an illustration from Christmas shopping, if you will call it that, that speaks to the topic that we're going to talk about. So a sign hung in a small town window in the only department store in that small town, and it said this, and it, uh, Christmas hours extended. No loud language, no shoving, no pinching, no stealing from carts, no grabbing from others' hands, no punching, no elbowing, no tackling, no wrestling, no biting, no throwing merchandise at other customers, employees, etc. No cutting in line, no crawling under shelves, no climbing over shelves, no knives, no firearms, no weapons of any kind. Move about the store in a quiet and orderly fashion. Respectfully make your selections. When necessary, politely interact with others and employees, other customers and employees. Pay for your purchases at the register and exit the store in a safe and orderly fashion. Why on earth would you need all of those guidelines for Christmas shopping? <laughs> That's what I hear. Now, I've not personally had that experience, although I did watch a Channel 11 news story years ago uh, during the Tickle Me Elmo craze about how uh, two or three people had been injured at a local toy store trying to purchase Tickle Me Elmo, and there was only a few left. Um, we want what we want, and if you don't have a higher power or a governing force in your life to determine how you are willing to get what you want, or if your parents did not train you well, or you rebelled against their training, or you could add in a number of other reasons why this might be so, people will go to great lengths to get what they want writing off or even disavowing any knowledge of what anyone else might want in order to get what they want. Let me say, as an aside, Christmas shopping should not be like that for us, obviously. But on top of that, there was some shopping going on of a sort when Jesus came. Last week we had a sermon we talked about and we looked at Jeremiah and how he was looking for the first coming of the Messiah, the first coming of the Christ. And in that, I mentioned to you, well, we might want to look at somebody like John the Baptist and how he was looking for the first coming of the Christ because he was really close to when Jesus actually came on the scene. But I said, that might not be appropriate because John the Baptist had so many prophecies that his birth was born in a miraculous way. There was something he knew. His parents probably told him and trained him up to an extent of what to expect at the coming of the Messiah. So he was not really necessarily the right one. And so we went back to Jeremiah, a prophet who was in a difficult spot looking for the first coming of the Messiah, and we read from that passage in Jeremiah chapter 33. Um, now I find myself today looking at John the Baptist at the first coming of the Messiah and at how some people responded. So not the expectation so much as what people were looking for in the Messiah and how they were waiting and so on but how some people responded. We have a peculiar passage in the New Testament about John the Baptist and sort of the end of his ministry, and it was sort of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and so on. And so this week we're going to look at how some people were looking for Jesus and responded to Jesus when he came on the scene. And we're going to do that, in a sense, through the life of John the Baptist, or really sort of the end of the ministry of John the Baptist. So we tend to shout amen, say hoot, holler, something, say something as we go to the scripture to remind us that we are now leaving the realm of human thinking and entering the realm of spiritual information where God is going to inform you and even ask of you maybe to change or do something a little different. So I hope you get excited with me as we turn to Matthew chapter 11. Amen. amen. This is the word of God, and if you allow it to, it will reign in your life um, 
as Jesus was the living word, and hopefully will speak to us through these, this passage that we're going to read. Okay, So I'm going to begin reading in the book of Matthew chapter 11. And I'm actually going to begin reading, so you can see the context, all the way back at uh, verse 2. But we don't really, we're drilling down on it when we get to verse 11. Okay, So 11, 2, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It says, Now when John was in prison, he heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And I said this was a peculiar instance because that's a strange question for a man to, answer, to be asking who was the one who proclaimed, this is the one I talked to you about when he saw Jesus and he saw the Holy Spirit come down at Jesus' baptism and so on. So it's somewhat a peculiar question. Is this the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And of course, those are specific Old Testament references telling very clearly what the Messiah would be like and the activities they would be engaging in during his time on the earth. So we see that John was supposed to be looking for this kind of Messiah. He was supposed to be looking for the things exactly what Jesus was doing. Instead of him going back and saying, yeah, go and tell him I'm the Messiah or go and tell him I'm God in the flesh or something like that. He says, go back and tell him because he knows what it's supposed to look like. Go back and tell him what you're seeing, and he'll know that's what he was expecting, basically, is Jesus' answer. Verse 6 says, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And so he makes a little reference there to tell John that even though Jesus is not everything that one might expect from a Messiah king, he is everything that God pointed to, and don't stumble over those parts of him that are a little bit harder to swallow. And I'll show you a little bit more about that later. Verse 7. And as these were going away, so going back to John, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Talking about John. A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. In other words, John was not anything like that. He was not a reed shaken by the wind. He was not a wearer of soft clothing. He wasn't indulging in life at all. He was very strict a very stringent diet, a very stringent message. A very, his life was very austere. He had very little. Verse 9 says, but why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So he's saying that that prophecy was written about John who would prepare the way for Jesus. Truly I say to you, among those, this is the verses we're really honing in on today. Truly I say to you, in other words, I, this is simple and very important, and a fact Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And that's an incredible, incredible endorsement of John's ministry, isn't it? There's no human being ever to live who has become greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And real quick, we have to drill down on kingdom of heaven uh, and the status thing that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven interchangeably with the term kingdom of God. The other gospels mostly use the words kingdom of God. Matthew uses it kingdom of heaven. So if you read it literally, it would say the kingdom of heaven. And the, he the word heaven would be talking about the heavens, right? In the sky, the place in the sky. And they had a picture of that in their minds as being heaven is above us. In the Old Testament, heaven is above us, and so on. The point is, this is the kingdom of heaven, which means this is the kingdom of God on earth as well. 
if you follow. Okay? He uses the term interchangeably. And then he's saying, greater is the least in the kingdom of heaven than John, who was the greatest born of women. And that is a, an incredible endorsement for the lowliest Christian, if you will, or the believer in Christ who has become part of the kingdom of God, to be greater than this great prophet who was selected by God to foretell the coming of the Christ, who was waiting and who indeed did identify Jesus at the first moment of his public ministry. He was the one who said, this is the one I have told you about. Okay, So John has this huge endorsement, and then if you are here today and you believe in Jesus, and even if you would judge yourself, and you shouldn't, but even if you would judge yourself to be the weakest Christian you have ever known, I had true faith in Christ, but I am the weakest Christian that I have ever known. I've never known anybody who was weaker than me in their faith. I've never known anybody who did less for me or less for Jesus than I have done. Even if that were true, but if you know you have true faith and you've been saved by God, according to Jesus, you are greater than John the Baptist, who was, if I could say it this way, pretty stinking incredible. Okay, So those are two amazing endorsements. And he says in verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And again, this is a problematic wording here. In fact, uh, theologians have like, tried to translate this several different ways. Um, four in particular. Uh, the first one says that what Jesus was really trying to say was that uh, the best effort uh, by people who were in the kingdom of God was being made to snatch people away from the, the world, but you can kind of see that's not consistent with this text, and that's the only argument against it. He's not really talking about that here. He's not talking about the kingdom of God. People in the kingdom of God are trying to seize people away from lostness and bring them into the kingdom of God, which I'm not sure is really possible. Um, but So that one doesn't really hold, and most theologians don't agree with it. The second one is that violent men try to bring about the kingdom of God. So there were people called zealots that lived in Jesus' day, and they were carrying a dagger around with them all the time, and at any call, they would rise up and kill the nearest Roman soldier. That was their job. That's what they believed God wanted them to do. And as soon as they said, okay, it's time, they would draw their dagger and kill the nearest Roman soldier. Those were zealots. And so some people say that, that Jesus is here saying that there were those who were trying to violently bring about the kingdom of God ever since they heard the teaching of John. Except that's not really right either. It doesn't, not only does it not really fit the passage, but on top of that, that was happening way before John came around. Okay, So that one doesn't really fit. And then it, it says, some people think it says, violent men do violence against those who are into the kingdom. Now this fits with the history of the kingdom of God because what happened to all the prophets who were serving God? They were all punished and killed, right? And what would happen to John? And what would eventually happen to Jesus and all the disciples? And all That fits, it's true, but again, it doesn't really fit with the context of the passage of Scripture that Jesus is talking about. And then the fourth one says that violent men are trying to force their way in. Or the phrase that's used there is a colloquialism from the Greek, which says they're entering with great passion or violence. And this one is generally accepted and fits the passage of Scripture, but I submit to you that it comes up a little short when we read the whole text. And I'm going to back up just a little bit and see how it goes. And then from the, day, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffer violence, and violent men take it by force. For, which is a because, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So at the time that John came, people began to violently push their way into the kingdom to try to be part of the kingdom of God, 
because the prophets and the law, all of the Old Testament, you could say, have spoken about the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And they want what they've been told is coming, and so they are trying to seize it now. Okay, So it fits, the fourth one fits, violent men are trying to force away the kingdom, but he's inferring something else. He's saying something else along with it. Verse 14, And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. Now that's interesting because John a couple of times denied that he was Elijah, but it's not necessarily saying that Jesus is literally Elijah, or maybe he was, I'm sorry, John the Baptist is literally Elijah, or maybe he was literally Elijah and John didn't know it. So we don't really know what was going on there, but Jesus says, if you can accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so this is one of those, it occurs regularly throughout the New Testament where Jesus is saying, you're going to have to listen a little closer now. I want you to listen a little closer to something I'm trying to explain to you. Pay closer attention. But to what shall I compare this generation, he says. So in other words, how can I liken this generation or, or how can I explain this to you, what I'm trying to say about this people that are here when I came? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So notice one of those is about rejoicing and one of those is about sorrow. And basically saying, can't get you to rejoice, can't get you to be sad. Okay, verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And that was the accusation, of, accusation against John. Because he wouldn't drink wine, because he only ate honey and locusts, because he wore rough clothing, that he had a demon. That was the accusation against him. And it's a little creepy, but he had a reasoning behind it, and Jesus accepted his reasoning, which I'll explain in a moment. 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, so it doesn't, now he wasn't overeating or overdrinking, but he was living his life normally, as people might normally eat and drink. And we also know that he fasted at times and things like that. So he was living his life like a normal, devout man might. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And a lot is wrapped up in that last saying. So, first of all, we see that John came living a certain lifestyle, and people saw him as having a demon. And then Jesus came, living a certain lifestyle, and they called him gluttonous man and a drunkard, meaning he wasn't somebody to be associated with, he was somebody to be dismissed, right? And even they said his work was of the devil at one time. And then verse 3, though, at the end, then there, I'm sorry, what verse that? Verse 19, at the very end of it, says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, there are those who respond appropriately, and how they respond will determine whether or not they've responded wisely. Okay? Then 20, then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Okay? So I only read that. We're not going to go from, from there. But I only read 20 because I want you to see that it sits in the context of a greater teaching. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, number one, he's talking about repentance. And you know the message of John the Baptist was repent, right? And what was the message of Jesus, by the way? Repent, right? So John was basically saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near, it's coming. And Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Either way, the message is repent. And so the first thing you need to see in this passage of scripture is that Jesus is talking about repentance. What did John the Baptist do before he started his public ministry? He repented. How did he repent? He repented emphatically, with force, 
with an extreme repentance. He repented from drinking alcohol to the point that he never drank alcohol. He repented from overeating to the point that he never ate much food. He ate honey and locusts. That's what he survived on. He repented from <clears throat> comfort, so much so that he wore a rough jerkin. He repented from the comforts of the city and life and that society, so much so he lived in the desert. <clears throat> John the Baptist repented for the kingdom of heaven was near. In uh, the book of Nehemiah, <coughs> I do have a little cold, but I think I'm going to be okay. In the book of Nehemiah, if you want to go back there and look real quick in chapter 8, I didn't mark this text because I hadn't originally planned on flipping it, but I'm going to flip there. Okay. The book of Nehemiah. Now you'll recall that Nehemiah was one of the leaders of one of the two returns home from exile. Okay? And after they had been lost in the... Thank you very much. Okay. After they had been lost in the... Um, in Babylon and Assyria and so on, the, the temple had been torn down, the walls had been broken down, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the Persian king, and they, um, he wanted to go home and fix the walls of the city, and he came sad before the king, the king said, What's, what makes you sad? And um, so, it, long story short, they get to go back and they're rebuilding the walls. They rebuild the walls uh, and the city is solid again. Some people live in the city. Some people live outside the city and they settle in and the people want to know what God wants from them. Now that God has done an amazing thing, what, God, what does God want from us? And in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra, who was the priest who led one of the earlier returns, um, reads the word of God. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 9. Oops, i got to go back just a little further. Verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they could understand the reading. So the teachers taught the people what the word of God says. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For, that's a because, all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. The Word of God, the written Word of God, when you read it and recognize that you don't align with it, will naturally bring about a holy sorrow. I read a book once called Holy Discontent. We ought to be discontented, in a sense, with how we have behaved knowing what God expects of us. If you know what God expects of you, and you know you're not meeting what God expects of you, and it doesn't bother you at all, you have a greater problem. But if you do know what God expects of you, and you know you're not meeting what God expects of you, then you have a greater solution. Repent. But there were those cities who had seen the miraculous works of Jesus and had not repented to them, and Jesus said, woe to them. He even goes on to say, for if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen those kinds of miracles, they would have repented. Think of Nineveh. Jonah came to them and said, God's going to destroy your city for all the evil that you've done. And what did they do? The entire city, to a man, they even put their cows in sackcloth. The entire city repented. The word of God, when it comes into your life and you recognize you are not doing what it is you're supposed to do, leads you to repentance. I have known people. I have known people who have recognized that they have sinned and they have vehemently 
oppose their own sin. They have turned from it. They have said, I will no longer lust after the members of the opposite sex. I will no longer, uh, I don't know, steal the tithe, or I will no longer fail to serve, or I will no longer slander people when they're not around. I will no longer engage in gossip. And they have, by their force, by the urgency of need that they recognized when they realized they were not lining up with the justice of God, they have determined themselves to change. And they have changed. They have walked away. What did John the Baptist say to those who were coming to him who questioned him about the repentance that he was preaching? What do we do now, they said. He said, go and show fruits of repentance. He told the tax collectors not to collect too much, the soldiers not to take advantage of their situation. He told thieves to go back and repay everything that they'd stolen, but not just what they'd stolen, but four times what they'd stolen. There are fruits of repentance. When you encounter the word of God and realize you are not doing what you're supposed to be doing, a natural sensation is sorrow. And it isn't just because you expect that you will go to hell because you'll be separated from God. If you know Jesus, then you shouldn't expect to do that. That's not going to happen. But it's because you realize that you are not honoring the God of the universe with what he has blessed you with. You have a natural sorrow for failing to come up to the measure. And a natural solution. Repent. And people do it. And very strong-willed people, very self-disciplined people, very strong in character people violently repent. The word violent means to do something urgently, with great zeal, with physical and, you could say, emotional, psychological, and spiritual implications. I'm going to do this. And they come forward in the church, and they say, I have lied, and I will never lie again. And they make sure, okay, I'm guilty of this myself. I was a liar before I got saved. After I got saved, it became high on my list to stop doing that. It took me two and a half years. I remember the last intentional lie I ever told. It was an extremely awkward moment because the Holy Spirit made me go back and tell the person the truth. After I lied to them about something that was stupid, it didn't matter at all. Since then, I have occasionally accidentally lied or given mistruth and then had to go back and fix it. But I have been very, like, I'll even catch myself in the middle of a sentence. I'll say, well, there were like 10 of them. And then I think in my mind, I'm like, well, actually, there were like eight. I'm like, no, wait, there were like eight of them. And I intentionally, forcefully, violently, vehemently, might be a good word to use, resisting, allowing myself to fall into the kind of behavior that I did before I got saved. That is repentance. And we talk about how repentance is always available. And I repent again today. I realize what I did long and I repent again. You know that once you're saved, there is an avenue that you're supposed to use to deal with sin that you find yourself in. It isn't repentance. It's confession. And asking the Lord for forgiveness and being cleansed again from unrighteousness, right? So if I have turned from all the sin in my life and I don't want to sin anymore, and it's part of your salvation to do so, repent, and then I am traveling a road which then I have the opportunity to sin on, it's not that I have turned back to everything that I once was. I've yielded myself to temptation. I've given in to doing wrong, whatever. It's not that I've become that person again. You know what happens if you're driving toward Oregon and you take a wrong turn, one wrong turn, to the right, let's say, and then you say, well, I'm going to turn around and go back the other way, and you drive for about 10 miles, will you get to Oregon? No. If you're going to Oregon and you turn to the right, and you turn around and go back the other way, you're going to go over here, Oregon's going to stay right over there, and you're going to be going completely the wrong way again. And what's happened is there are Christians who have become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're expecting the second coming of Jesus, 
and they get off on a little wrong trail, and then all of a sudden, and by little wrong trail, I mean a sin that would be big enough to send any ordinary person to hell, but it's not going to send you to hell because you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And then they spend a long time fighting, vehemently, violently fighting, trying to get themselves on the right course. And that is not what we were signed up for. That is not what Jesus came for. Because in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is not only talking about repentance, is he? He's also talking about rejoicing. He's also talking about rejoicing. It's done. It's settled. I repented. Notice in that same passage I just read from, from Nehemiah, he said to the people, do not mourn or weep. Now these are people that were not following God the way they were supposed to. And he says, do not mourn or weep that you have now heard that you have not been following God the way you were supposed to. Why would he say that? Well, it goes on to say, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our God. Do not be grieved. Wait for it. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the passage in the New Testament talking about since the coming of John the Baptist, people were vehemently, violently thrusting themselves into the kingdom of God like the 37th man into a Yugo, like there's only a little bit of time left. i got to come and kneel at the cross right away, and I've got to beat my body into submission. Oh, now who does that sound like? We've got to do everything in our power to follow God? Yes. But Jesus was concerned that people... Did you know, by the way, that Jesus later runs into some people who got saved under the gospel of John the Baptist? They hadn't received the Holy Spirit. This is a repeated instance in the New Testament. You can't just repent. So then we say, well, repentance, I do it once, but I live it for my whole life. I turn from sin, and I'm going to live holy and righteous the best I can for the end of my days, right? That I can do forever. Always trying not to fall, not to give in temptation, always trying to walk with God, be closer to God, and so on. Listen to me. When you walk with God, there's a word for that. When you live with God and receive the power and strength of God in your life, there's a word for that. Rejoice. It's rejoice. John the Baptist taught that the gospel was coming, that the remission of sins was going to be available through this one who would come, who would be Jesus. That's what he was teaching. So repent. Turn from your sin. More vehemently, turn from your sin. So you're, you're dismissing evil spirits from your life. You're dismissing sinful behaviors and temptations from your life so you can be open to hearing the gospel. So when Jesus comes and the true gospel is preached and the remission of sins is completely there, you can accept it. Because otherwise, you'll be wrapped up in this other stuff and you won't hear what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus says it, and some people prepared themselves, as John talked about preparing themselves, and some people didn't. You know what the problem, by the way, of uh, violence is? It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. The fight to stay in the kingdom, to get in and stay in the kingdom of God is absolutely exhausting. And you see people who vehemently turn from sin in their lives and they look really good. They're trying really hard and their behaviors are really good for a nice long time. But there's not the joy in it. There's not the rejoicing in it. There's not the depending on Jesus in it. And the end effect is they get tired and they don't run the course. They don't hear the voice of God. They don't hear the words speak to them the way that God wants to speak to them every time they open their Bibles. They don't hear 
the celebration in heaven. And I know it's distant sound, but it's for real. And it's lasted since the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Of course, I'm using figurative language to describe something that's spiritual, that's hard to speak about in words. And guess what? Jesus did the same thing. And that's why he said, he who has ears, let him hear. Pay close attention. I'm not talking about just repenting and turning to me. I'm talking about something more. In the book of Matthew, back in chapter 9, and I've got two texts left before we're done for the day. In the book of Matthew, in chapter 9, I'm going the wrong way. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Matthew 9, beginning verse 11. Now I'll start back at... Um, I'll start back at verse 9, but listen when we get to starting in 11. Okay? And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table of the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, and we're into the text now, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, and I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus had a ministry of repenting. Sure, turn from sin. But once you turn from sin, you sit down at the table. You walk with Jesus daily in joy. Listen how far this goes. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, who? Disciples of who? Disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You know why they fasted? Because they had repented from sin. Because they were vehemently following the course of God. Walking as best they knew how according to the kingdom of heaven's rules, if you will. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old gar garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put wine into fresh wineskins. Both are preserved. Once you repent and turn to Jesus, you become a Fresh wineskin. All old things have passed away and you've become a new creature, a new creation. Oh, but you have to repent, right? It's how you got there was to repent. You turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. There is now, Jesus said in, in chapter 24, go and tell everyone that there is a remission of sins available through the sacrifice of Christ. So now your sins can be washed away. Sins can be cleansed. You can be free. You can enjoy rejoicing in the Lord. The kingdom of heaven has two feet, a, feet of, a foot of repentance and a foot of rejoicing. But if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought not be leaning on your foot of repentance. That's exhausting to keep getting out of bed every day and say, well, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. To force yourself, to beat yourself, to strain yourself. How long do you think you'll make it? Will you make it until Jesus comes again? But the kingdom of God has a second foot. It's rejoicing. Now there's a great foot to stand on. A rejoicing foot. 
a foot that loves the Lord, that recognizes that God is good and that he has cleansed you from sin and that he's taken you. Fear not, little children, for I desire to give you the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. That's the second foot. Anybody a partier back in the day? Has anybody ever been a partier? I'll raise my hand. I was a partier. Okay, I've got four partiers in the room. Five. And, and a ripple of honesty going on now. So we might get higher. Okay? What do you know about partying? What's the funny thing about partying? It's fun, right? You really have... What? That's funny, all right. Yeah. A little too much alcohol and you get drunk too. A little too much partying and you pass out. Partying, rejoicing, is exhausting. It's tiring. Right? You ever try to stand on one foot all day? Just pick your left foot. Stand on your left foot all day. Ever try to do that? What happens? Your leg begins to quiver. Begin to wobble. Things are not going right here. This isn't going to go good. Right? My dad's doctor told him that a sign of whether or not you're healthy is how long you can stand on one foot. He said that most Americans can't stand on one foot for 17 seconds. So if you can stand on one foot for 17 or more seconds, he said, and this is just what his doctor said, he said, you're going to live to be an old man. Well, he's already done that. He's already lived to be an old man, and in his 70s, he can stand on one foot for over 17 seconds. Can you? It's exhausting to stand on one foot. Your knee start, My knee is starting to ache right now. My foot is turning left and right as I stand on one foot. Right? So I switch to stand on the other foot for a while. How long do you think that'll last? Take about the same amount of time before it starts to get tired. Less on one foot than the other because I might have a broken toe. The point is, you can't stand on one foot your whole life. And it wasn't meant to. The kingdom of heaven has two feet. Repent and rejoice. You get out of bed in the morning and you rejoice. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved my soul. He has cleansed me. I am a new creation. I'm going to heaven. <coughs> but at the same time, when opportunity arises and you capitalize on the opportunity, you wind up in sin you repent of that specific sin. That looks like confession and accepting Jesus' cleansing of you. You realize there are wrong things that you can do. They should be accidents. Sometimes they're more like incidents, if you take my meaning. And sometimes they're like choices. Why? Because sometimes while you're rejoicing, you feel like you can do anything. You feel like nothing can stop you. I can just do it because I want to do it. And Jesus is going to forgive it anyway, right? How many people stand just on the foot of rejoicing and the truth is they're not saved because they never put the other foot down? And Jesus is going to come one day and there's going to be a million people or a hundred million people in the world standing just on the foot of rejoicing talking every day about how they're saved. The universalist church is out there telling us how we're all saved and I'm guessing none of them are saved and I'm not being mean, but the reality is if you're not saved through Jesus Christ, you're not saved. That's what the Bible says. There's only one way to heaven. And so Jesus is going to come up and he's going to blow a little breeze and everybody that's standing only on the foot of rejoicing is going to fall over as you would expect. Oh, watch out. Because everybody that's only standing on the foot of repentance is also going to fall over, aren't they? And Jesus would say that whoever has two feet on the ground, repentance and rejoicing both, standing firmly in the kingdom of God, they are greater even than John the Baptist. No matter how weak they are, or how useless they seem. That they have accepted me as Lord and Savior and they stand both on those two feet, on the feet of repentance and on the foot of rejoicing. And they have those two pillars under them. Like huge concrete pillars that support 70 foot tall buildings, skyscrapers. Like the bedrock of a mountain. Like the foundation of a life. If they have those two feet under them, if they have truly repented and begun to serve the Lord, and if they have rejoicing in the Lord and they can walk in rejoicing but know enough to turn from sin when it crops itself up, 
And when that gentle wind blows that would knock one over who was only on one foot or the other, instead of falling, they're just going to firm up a bit. Maybe even lean into it. Luke chapter 16 is our final text. And this is my conclusion. But it'll take me a minute because this is a deep teaching. So hang with me. He who has ears, let him hear. Luke chapter 16. <coughs> Interestingly enough, it begins in a place where uh, we're talking about the exact same thing. So we know that the two texts are related because uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, who was not a witness, but rather an interviewer of those who were, writes, and I'll begin in verse 14, Luke chapter 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, <laughs> I gotta love that description, who were lovers of money, they were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. Let me tell you, that takes work. That is vehement, hard work every day to make sure that everybody sees you as justified and righteous. That everybody sees you and they would judge you and say, you're good enough, you're a good person, we'll listen to what you have to say. That takes work. They were hypocritical about it, but they justified themselves in the sight of men. That's what Jesus said. But God knows your hearts. Whew. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Does this sound familiar? The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife. Now, this is just an illustration. People quote this all the time, but it's an illustration for what we're actually talking. It's a truth also, but it's an illustration. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. He was just laying down a tenant of the holiness of marriage. Marriage is unbreakable, and he was using that as a pillar to represent what he said before, which is that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one, for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail, which is a response to people who are trying to force themselves into the kingdom of God. You see how that fell? People are trying to force themselves into the kingdom of God, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. You know what Jesus just said? He said, to those who, before the crucifixion, he said, no matter what you do, no matter how violent you are, Kicking, scratching, grabbing, crawling, seeking, working, sweating, bleeding. I don't care what you do. I don't care how strong your character is. There is a sin debt that must be paid, and that's not going away. So you can repent because the kingdom of heaven is near, and all it will ever be is near. But once the sin debt is paid, the door is open. And repenting like that will no longer be necessary and there will be much rejoicing. And then he tells this parable. And there's two key things in here. I, I want to, you've heard it, probably heard it before if you've been in church a little, read the Bible a little, whatever. It's relatively common. And I, and I uh, restate that. It's not a parable. It, he tells this story. We know it's not a parable because he uses a first name of a man in the story and he doesn't do that in any of the parables. This is an actual story of an event that occurred, and Jesus is telling it. He says, Now there was a certain rich man, and he, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. 
And I submit to you that is a style of rejoicing, right? He was rejoicing every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He was in the bad shape. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Hades is uh, come from a Greek word, actually like talking about a burning, fiery place, okay? Like the valley that was outside where they burnt the waste outside Jerusalem. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now, before we go any further, I want you to understand what just happened. A man with strong character. I didn't say good. With strong character. A wealthy man who lived his whole life eating of the splendor of the earth and dressing like essentially a king. Just ask for the right for a man who laid at his gate full of sores licked by dogs hungry every day, ignored every day, to come with a single drop of water on his finger, stick his finger in his mouth. Why don't you think about the biggest, strongest man you know? Some, somebody. Yeah, don't, don't do a superhero, a real person. A wrestler, football player, somebody in your family, real person. Now, if they would come here now, and they would get down on this floor and kneel, and if I would take a cup of water, and I would dip my finger in a cup of water, and I would put my finger in their mouth, and they would suck my finger, how strong would they look in that moment? He is divorcing himself of everything he enjoyed. He is saying, I, I'm not asking to rejoice now. I just need a little help. Can I just get a little hope? Even if you would just send that, that diseased creep over here to stick his finger in my mouth? He says, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides this, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. The rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So now he's asking that Lazarus be allowed to go back and warn his brothers. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What did, what did Jesus say? Until John the Baptist, the law and the prophets testified. And now that John the Baptist has come, men are trying to <coughs> violently force their way into the kingdom of God. They have Moses and the prophets, he said. Let them hear them. But he said, this is Abraham. I'm sorry, this is the rich man. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. See, what was missing in the life of the rich man and of his brothers was repentance. They stood on one foot their whole lives. And when their bodies died, 
they would wind up in hell for eternity. They stood on the foot of rejoicing, and on the foot of rejoicing alone. And he now realizes that they are still alive. They still have the opportunity. They could repent. And he's saying, just let the man who essentially lived in repenting only, as far as we know, go and tell them. And if he comes back from the dead, surely they'll listen. And one verse left. But he said to him, this is Abraham, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Which, of course, is a reference to Jesus himself. Jesus was saying to them, and he's saying to us as we await the second coming of the Messiah, repentance is a real thing. You need to turn from your sin, turn from who you once were, and turn your life totally over to God. And if you have not done that, you have not been saved. How do we know that for a fact? Because even if a man came back to life from the death, you still wouldn't listen to him. You wouldn't listen to a preacher. You wouldn't listen to the word. You wouldn't listen to a track. You wouldn't listen to your wife or your husband or your kids. You wouldn't listen to your grandkids. You won't listen to the evangelist on TV. You won't listen to anyone until first you have decided you have repented. You have turned your life over. Why did John the Baptist preach the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? Because he knew the kingdom of heaven was going to come near and people need to hear it. So repent and hear the gospel. Turn from your sin and recognize that Jesus is willing to pay for it all. Why is it that people get angry when you tell them you forgive them and they don't feel like they had anything to be forgiven for? Because they have not repented of what they have done. One foot is not on the ground. They're still perfectly happy accepting that they hurt you or that you perceive that they hurt you. It's the same way with God. We did what God did not want from us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, I, every human being who has ever lived must repent. And in repenting then... All sin has the opportunity through Jesus, because of his sacrifice, to be washed away, washed as white as snow, forgotten as far as the east is from the west, gone, gone, gone. You think that's not something to rejoice on? Get a firm footing. Put both feet down in the kingdom of God. Don't be foolish enough to arise at the gates of heaven, a man who has only repented or a man who has only rejoiced. For you will have wasted your life, the purpose it was given for you, was to discover this truth, that the proper relationship with God is available through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if your foot of repentance is on the ground, <coughs> and your foot of rejoicing is on the ground, then you are in the kingdom of God, and you are greater even than John the Baptist himself. I want to give you an illustration to close by. I like to read historical fiction. Much of what is in historical fiction is history. I don't often know which is which. I read the book, and I'm not trying to learn history. I'm trying to be entertained. Um, I don't get to read as much as I would like. I recently finished one book. It took me like about a year because I read a lot of other things. It's Bible stuff, I write, and things like that. So I just, I don't read a day at most. In a story about a young man named Horatio Hornblower, there's a, a time that he's at war. He's a midshipman aboard a Navy vessel at war, and their ship defeated, and he was taken into captivity. He wound up as a prisoner of war. After a while, I mean, they thought it was their duty to escape, and this is the rules. If you're a prisoner of war, it's your duty to escape and get back to the fight, right? They thought it was your duty to escape. Well, they, that wasn't working out. Finally, the person running the prison asked him to give him his parole. It's the old-fashioned term of parole. He said, well, you promise you won't run away. You won't try to escape. And so, then you and all your men can have more blood on the grounds, and you can have better food, and you can leave the prison even and go out to the coast and wash the sea and things like that. <coughs> so... 
he agreed. He said, I'll give you my parole. One day, he walks down the coastline, and there's a battle going on between a large English sailing ship and another, probably French or whatever, whoever they were at war with. And it raged through the night. Well, the English warship won, and there were men in the water. And some men in the water washed up on a reef, but they were out at the end of the reef, away from the shore, 150, 200 yards, in ice-cold water, at night. They were surely going to get hypothermia and drown. And he didn't want to see that happen. So he goes to the, the warden, and he says, hey, there's men on the reef. Send some men. The warden's like, I don't have anybody to send. I don't have anybody to run a boat, whatever. And he said, well, give me, give me a boat, and I'll go. I think he took a boat and a man, whatever. And he said, you... I, I have your parole, and then people in the prison are saying, don't, don't send him, don't let him go, don't let him go, because he'll just take the boat and go. The English warship is still out there, and then he'll be back in the war effort, he'll be free, he'll have his, that's his perfect escape, and he said, I will not run, so I, I don't want to see those men die. So he gets in the boat, he rows out there, gets out to the end of the reef, he's fighting the waves, it's a crazy effort to even get there, get the guys in the boat, they're already partially hypothermic, and they're on the verge of dying, and he's trying, and one guy's trying to help him a little bit, and trying to get back into the shore, and he can't do it, he can't do it, and the and the waves are so rough, and he gets pushed off course, and the English warship picks up his little boat, him and the guys that were on the reef. And one guy died of hypothermia in the boat, the other guy, I think, survived, and they, they get aboard. So he's aboard, and they give him warm clothes, and they give him food, and he sleeps the night aboard the ship, and the next morning, he says to the captain, I have to go back to prison. Well, no, you don't. You're aboard my ship, under my authority, and I am commanding you to stay here, I'm commanding you to rejoin the war effort, be an officer aboard my ship, and you know, report back to the mission. You don't have to go back. He said, no, I gave the warden of the prison my word. I said I would not escape. He said, well, you didn't intentionally escape. You were washed away by the ocean. That wasn't under your control. And now you're here and you're staying. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> so I gave my word that I would come back if it were within my power to do so, and if you keep me, I will desert the first opportunity and go back to prison. He said, right, you, you'll be tried for treason. He said, first of all, he said, I don't think so, but if I was by some chance, that's the price I would have to pay because my integrity is worth more than my freedom. you got to start at the beginning with repentance. I know it says Come follow me, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want to be free. I want to be free. Don't you want to? I know there is great rejoicing in the kingdom of God. We want to rejoice. Don't you want to play the music loud? Don't you want to eat a piece of cake, have a good roast beef sandwich, or oh, I'll get hungry because it's about lunchtime, whatever. You want to just enjoy life. You want to hug your kids and go to their graduations or go to their, their football games or whatever. Don't you want to do that? You've got to start with repentance. So before the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is near, entreating you begging you to enter in. Start with repentance. Turn from your sin. You have sin. We all had sin. I had sin. We all turn from our sin. And when we turn from our sin, we accept Jesus Christ as Lord. That means he tells us what to do and we do it. And Savior, that means he washed away the penalty for our sin. And not only the penalty for our sin, but the sin itself. We are a new creation. We sing praises on Sunday. Have you ever come and sat in worship and had a hard time praising God? It's a if so, then I think maybe because the last time you left God's presence, you forgot to give him your parole. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you belong to him. Free, rejoicing. And he's just that good. And there are no number of hymns, no amount of songs, no amount of poetry we could write, no amount of paintings we could paint, no amount of awesome things we could do in this lifetime, even leading people to Jesus. 
that will compare with the great gift that we have received from God. At the same time, understand it starts with repentance, but you can't stand on that one foot forever, no matter how strong you are. You have to move on to accepting the truth that Jesus Christ paid for your sins and you have much to rejoice about. Two feet standing in the kingdom of heaven, unshaken. And when you've done that, you'll be greater than he who might be the greatest prophet who ever lived. Your faith will grow. Your life will be unleashed and unchanged. You can tell people about Jesus. You can serve and give without worrying about being recompensed. You can spend your life, your blood, sweat, and tears, serving others instead of your blood, sweat, and tears trying to get into the kingdom of God instead of the prophets and the law all together testified until John came. And then John said this. This is the one. But at the very end of his ministry, in the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, not even the beginning, but in the middle of Jesus' public ministry, John said, are you the one? Or was someone else to come? You know why? Because as the greatest man ever born to women, by that time, and I submit to you probably by this time too, he was tired of repenting. He was tired of living a life by rules and laws and being prepared for the kingdom to come. And he was ready to rejoice. Now, I, I want to say to you, this is what I believe happened, and we don't have this story written, and this is my final thing. I believe that that word came back to John in prison, and he heard it, and you know what he did? He rejoiced. And then later, when the king took his head, he went straight to heaven. But at this moment, in this story, we know this fact, and that is that John the Baptist, who proclaimed Jesus and all that he had done, had not entered the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven at that time. Even though he was the greatest man to ever live, you may be the greatest man or woman that you have ever known. You cannot live on one leg standing. Repent and rejoice and accept Jesus in charge of your life. And every time Jesus corrects you, instead of going, oh, I'm so sorry, Jesus, and falling down in a crumpled heap, realizing you sinned against him again, rejoice that he still tarries with you. Rejoice that he still cares. Every time you persevere, struggle, have difficulty, tribulation, rejoice that you're able to suffer as he was able to suffer and you're in the boat with Jesus. Every time you're called upon to make a greater sacrifice, rejoice that you're able to make the sacrifice and honor God. That's how we honor God every day. On both feet.